welcome to the NCAST, your source for authentic conversations in the financial industry. I'm your host, Rafael Delian, Senior Vice President of Industry Engagement with NContracts. In this episode, I'll be talking with a trailblazer in Texas who is on a mission to help community banks thrive in a rapidly changing environment and remain relevant by pursuing innovative solutions, including fintech partnerships. With me today is Christopher Williston. He's the president and CEO of the Independent Bankers Association of Texas, which is the largest state association dedicated exclusively to dealing with community bank advocacy. Prior to leading IBAT, Chris served as the worked for the association for nine years in numerous roles, including chief operations officer, and held the position of director of communication at the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors in Texas. As president and CEO of IBAT, Chris has a responsibility for the association as well as its subsidiaries, including the IBAT Education Foundation and the IBAT Financial Services. In addition to his job responsibility at IBAT, Chris has been recognized for his service to the association industry. He is the past chairman of the Texas Society of Association Executives, an organization that also honored him with its Young Professional Leadership Award and Chairman's Award. Chris has been recognized with the Certified Association Executive Designation from the American Society of Association Executives. He's a graduate of Texas Christian University, and he and his wife, Michelle, live in Cedar Park and have six children. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Ralph. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We've been talking a lot uh, while I've known you about the challenges community banks have faced and, and, you know, kind of with the mergers and acquisition. And I went back and looked when um, I started working for the OCC in 1989. And at that point, there were 12,578 charters and there were 193 new charters that were issued that year. And you fast forward to the end of 2021 and we're dealing with 4,236 charters and only nine new charters that were issued. So with this problem and there's natural consolidation, what do you see as the challenges facing community banks? Well, I think you've got a couple different challenges, right? So let's let's focus first. I, I always like to, to dive into this issue and talk first about, I think we have a de novo crisis, even more so than we have an M&A crisis. And you just alluded to some pretty interesting numbers. I think if you go back and look at industry statistics back through the 1970s or so, you had on average about 150 new banks created every year from let's say 1970 up till about 2008, right? So you, you always had mergers and acquisitions in that time period, but at the same rate or, or at least offsetting that to, to a large degree, you had a great number of new charter creations. We haven't had a hundred new charters created in the last decade, much less per year over the last year. So Immediately, you know, you, you go 10, 12 years of charter creation out the window. That's 10, that, that's 1,000, 1,200 charters, right? Based on historical averages that are just gone and don't exist. So you got to talk about that side when you talk about the banking landscape as a whole. Now let's talk about those things that are really driving the M&A activity. When you look at some industry survey data that's out there, what bankers are saying is that they're scared. They're scared that they're not going to be able to uh, provide a competitive uh, rate of return for their shareholders in the future. They're afraid that they're not going to be able to keep pace with industry technology, changing digital landscape of uh, financial services. And they're afraid that they're not going to be able to drive efficiency with their institutions. Two of those three things are technology problems, right? By and large, you go back to technology over and over. Banks are afraid they're not going to be able to keep pace with customer expectations or utilize the full promises of technology to drive efficiency with their institutions. And so then you get straight to the third scenario I outlaid, which is 
uh, driving competitive rate of return for their shareholders. Okay, there's two ways to do that, right? Making sure that you have income and making sure you're, you're operating efficiently. Those things culminate. This all really comes back to, I think, bankers being afraid of, tech, of, of not being able to keep pace in technology and utilize it. So there's a lot of issues around, uh, you know, the comments that you're making there, but I don't know if it's a necessary fear. It's the, maybe the anxiety, it's changing. How do they keep up with? What, what are some of the things that really challenge the bankers? I, I, I know that even from my seat at the OCC, I met with you guys a number of times with all the associations and one of the common themes was the core. Does that seem to hit the nail on the head for you? It does, yeah. I mean, the core you have to look at as the place where all banking technology issues begin and end. The cores have become so vitally important to the bank's overall approach to technology as a whole. And so what you've had over the last decade or so, just as you've had uh, the mergers and acquisitions within the banking industry as a whole, you've also had a, a massive consolidation of industry technology providers uh, within the course themselves. So now you have uh, a situation where, according to data that, that we access through our friends at FedFiz, about 80% of the banks in the country are, are what we call core strategic. So they have concentrated that core, that online, that mobile, all of those services within one provider. That's a, a blessing and a curse. There's a good part of that in that there's efficiency plays there. You don't have to worry about integrating disparate systems. And integration is really key. That can be incredibly expensive, uh, not only to put in place, but also to, to pay for the data that's passed across the bridges between those systems. So it made sense in a lot of ways for banks to concentrate their technology with specific providers. But now we have a situation where all their eggs are in one basket, things are changing really quickly, and we have essentially one failure point. And that is with the core providers themselves. And if those core providers are not keeping pace with changes in technology, then the bank really has no control over their own destiny. And I think when we talk about fear, and, and you use the word anxiety, I like that word better. When you feel like you don't have control over your own destiny, I think that is something that causes anxiety. Yes, I, I thought very deliberately about the word because I, most bankers I know, they're not afraid. It's the anxiety. So I, I'm with that. But I think, again, keeping up with that accelerated pace of change with the cores. Again, banking was pretty staid for a long time. And then we've really seen with kind of, I would say, coupled with iPhones coming out and newer technology, there's been such a rapid pace in terms of doing this. So if we look back to that same analogy, you've got a lot of vendors like end contracts or others who are wanting to work with and partner with the banks and they're working with the core. So it's almost trying to build a digital world on top of an analog platform and there's challenges there. So how do you see that, you know, banks are dealing with that now and what do what looks like to be a solution on the horizon? You know, I, th I think... What you're emphasizing is it it all comes down to that that core integration and and you're right the the new providers that are coming into this landscape are saying okay well no problem all we'll do is we'll we'll build an integration of the core and the cores have have done some substantial work over the last decade to try to build api layers and, and things onto their systems to allow for third parties to integrate more easily but you just said it trying to do a digital, digital solution on top of an analog system I think is is you know perhaps a it's not a perfect way to say it but it certainly points to the fact that that we're often trying to integrate very very modern technologies with other pieces of technology that are in some cases 30 and 40 years old 
And that is incredibly challenging. I know it's been a challenge for the core, and it ultimately puts the community bank, which is reliant upon the core, at a disadvantage in, in this landscape. And I think that is what we really have to be thinking about. How are we going to solve that problem? Because we need our community banks around. We can't have them at a uh, terribly you know, competitive disadvantage in the, in, the, in the marketplace. It's just a bad place for us to be. It puts our community banks at, at, at a point of weakness. And I think that uh, we're far too dependent on the community banks to survive and thrive to create that reality. So talking about the core is one part of the challenge, but I think, again, the other part of the challenge is just technology as itself. There's so much coming at bankers, the headwinds, the challenges. So when you're talking to your bankers at your group, what are those technology changes? What are the issues around that that they're trying to understand and digest? Well, you just, I mean, you just spoke to the, the I think the most critical piece of all of this is the speed. And I think there's a, a real temptation, not that I think bankers are doing this intentionally, but because the speed at which new technologies are coming to the fore, look at something like buy now, pay later. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was a nothing and then suddenly it was everywhere, right? And, and banks are saying, well, do you have a strategy around, or, or banks, banks are being asked, do you have a strategy around buy now, pay later? Are you going to be involved in that space at all? Well, it's like, how do you, how do you even evaluate something that didn't, didn't seem to exist yesterday and is here today, right? Cryptocurrency, I know there was a little bit you know, slower pace for cryptocurrency to get going, but during a large period of time where cryptocurrency really came into popular attention, came into the real cultural zeitgeist was at a time when community bankers were really, really busy making PPP loans about 18 hours a day, right? So they didn't have time to pause and consider, you know, what are we gonna do with this? Are we gonna engage with it? How are we going to uh, in any way ad adopt this for the use of our customers? Or is there some, some practical application that we can embrace? This is the case every time you turn around, it seems that there's something new flying at bankers. And so there's a natural temptation, I think, to kind of bury your head in the sand and say, well, we've seen a hundred of these things come and go. So maybe if we just don't engage with the next one, then it will come and go too. I don't think that that's the, the gamble that we want our bankers to take, especially not our community banks. I agree. I, I think we're at an inflection point with the industry and I applaud your efforts to recognize the benefits of community banks. As you know, my father was a community banker. So I, I, I grew up you know, from the age of five or six running around the bank and then started working in high school. So I, I'm a big proponent. I've spent my entire career at the OCC working with and in and around community banks. Uh, so I applaud you on that. When you're talking about this accelerated rate of change that, that has happened and it's moving so quickly. Would you say that there's a lot of noise in the industry that bankers are trying to figure out, uh, where do I go? What do I do? Who do I turn to? Who's trying to sell me what? What have you heard and what have you seen? Yeah, I, I think you just hit the, the head, hit the nail on the head. There is a lot of noise. And I think there are some that really benefit from the noise. And I don't want to cast dispersions, but but you know, go back to the fear. Right. There are there are people that benefit right from the M&A environment being very robust and they want bankers to be afraid. They, they don't want them to just be anxious. They want them to be afraid that if they don't divest themselves of their of their charter now, then they're going to be in dire straits and they're going to lose their their franchise value because there's some there's there's benefit to those those folks in, in the investment banking realm. There's also those that 
that that that do very well when bankers feel that they don't have the power to navigate through this landscape on their own and so they have to turn to others in order to do so so i'll use this term very very generally because i i know some wonderful folks in this space and so i don't mean to, to generally cast aspersions but let's just let's just generally call them consultants right consultants are really good about amplifying the noise so that and kind of convincing bankers that everybody's doing this thing and or everybody's doing that thing that doesn't bear out at the banker level if you talk to enough bankers they're like no we're not we're not even looking at some of these things we're much less jumping at it but if consultants can convince enough people that everybody's doing this thing then that naturally turns into some engagements to you know have the banker engage the consultant to help them navigate that thing that everybody's supposedly doing so I always I, I'm very dubious at this point when I look at industry data and, and industry surveys, because uh, I, one of my favorite uh, industry surveys over the last couple of years was uh, they asked a group of bankers in the survey, uh, are you planning on changing your core over the next year? And 11 percent of the bankers said, yes, we're going to change our core over the next over the next 12 months. You know well enough, that's a preposterous number, right? It's crazy. So I did the thing that people don't do, right? I turned to the back of that survey and said, okay, what does the raw data look like? There were three people that responded to that survey that said they were gonna change their core over the next 12 months. And that extrapolated out with the data set that was very limited, meant 11% of people were gonna change their core. That kind of industry data, I think they love to take data points like that sometimes and amplify them, hold them up. And so everybody's going, oh my goodness, I'm stuck on this core that I'm not happy with, and 11% of the industry is going to change over the next 12 months. Therefore, I'm already behind. I need somebody to help. What am I doing? I'm going to pick up the phone and call that consultant to help me navigate my way out of this pain, this, this corner that I painted myself into. Exactly. So I've seen these challenges firsthand, uh, again, with consultants and others, and especially when I was sitting in the role of the regulator, because attending many of these conventions, like, you know, it was, they're going to do this, and this is what's going to happen to you. And that wasn't always the case. We had to be there to kind of, all right, here's what's going to happen realistically. So in your efforts to address this issue, you've embarked on a new project. Tell us about Bankers Helping Bankers. So Bankers Helping Bankers is a response just exactly to what I just outlined there with uh with the noise within the industry. We as bankers, you know, we have lots of conferences, we have things that we go to. Uh, and I think, you know, anytime you talk to bankers, they'll tell you that one of their favorite and most valuable things that they do is when they get together with their peers and talk about what's really happening within, within their institutions. It's an incredibly collaborative industry in many, many ways. But unfortunately, those collaboration points are often limited to those, those couple of days are at a conference once or twice a year. And so Bankers Helping Bankers was really born from a sense that, that we need to take that traditional promise of associations to bring people together to solve the, the challenges that we have as an industry, to, to tackle the opportunities that we have as an industry, and try to navigate them together. And so Bankers Helping Bankers, at its core, is a social media platform, a place to bring people together that are specifically bankers. No other industry types, right? No other thought leaders, no other other vendors, no other folks can get into the platform. So if a banker has a question, they can they know that they can ask it in a place where it's just their fellow bankers that are, that are navigating. But we always say that Bankers Helping Bankers is social plus, because the first time I ever logged into Facebook, it didn't know anything about me, right? They had to build a very robust data set about me over time. Bankers Helping Bankers is built on top of a data platform, uh, again, from our friends over at FedFizz, who have worked in industry data for a long time. And so when a banker logs into Bankers Helping Bankers, 
Uh, they're automatically connected to 10, 15 years of financial data on their bank that's sitting in the background. They're also uh, connected to a proprietary data set that FedFiz has put together of the entire technology stack of their bank. And that allows us to do some really dynamic custom reports to help a bank understand uh, how they can uh, build a technology roadmap that would be specific to their institution and help them account uh, and address for those integrations that we spoke about earlier that are so vital uh, when they're implementing new technology to tie those back to their core. So it's a, it's a very technology focused platform, but I think it's already, we've already seen it morph uh, where bankers are coming with all kinds of different questions into the bankers helping bankers community to talk about those things and to navigate them together. So again, early on, as, as you were just starting out, uh, I was with you you guys in Fredericksburg, Texas at that event, the Fed uh, FIS event. And I thought it was a great event, uh, kind of like a speed dating for fintechs who were partnering with banks. You got right to it. It was, uh, <clears throat> I think, again, from my point of view, it was a better use of time than sometimes the association meetings are where they come through the exhibit hall and, and chat because they, they don't come prepared with the questions. Here, everybody was coming prepared. And did that start as a model for success in terms of building that? I know they, it started launching right after uh, that meeting and uh, I think it was September of last year. Yeah, it, it really is born out of that model. It's much more laid back and you alluded to it. This is the, the blessing and the curse of the association business model is we kind of have always done things a certain way. And, and those things are, are, are really valuable in some ways and they have some fundamental flaws in them as well. I think when you have an event like the, the FedFiz you know, FinTech Roundup that you spoke about and you, and you see what can happen when we slow down and when we engage in conversation with, with one another, not only bankers to bankers, but also bankers and, and vendor solution providers, those conversations really help both parties tremendously. And so making sure that we just had a facilitated place where conversation could happen on an ongoing basis with bankers and bankers was exactly what we aim to do with bankers helping bankers. And and I think you're I think you're absolutely right. It was seeing what could happen when you really bring a place, a safe place for people to talk to one another. What good can come out of it? So going back to with the FedFist and the data that they were showing and the proprietary model, what were bankers surprised about most when they got to see this data that you know the company had on them? Well, I, I think the first question is just how, how the heck did they get that, right? And, and I can't answer that question because that's, that's, their, uh, that's their intellectual property and their methodology. But bankers are, are really surprised. I think they don't realize sometimes some of the breadcrumbs that they leave behind that, that show the rest of the world what technology they are running. And so uh, it's kind of eye-opening when, when you see that somebody has really put together a set of, of things that can be found and then also just an understanding of how technology works together to put together a data set that's really, really reliable. It's very surprising. But what we like to do is, is kind of is tell them what the data shows when we're at a 30,000 foot view. It's really eye-opening to folks to find out that that 80% of the industry is core strategic with that same provider uh, of, of core online and mobile all in the same company. It's really eye-opening uh, when you start to extrapolate what that means for the industry and how dependent we are on a very few number of providers to really power the entire industry and how, while that has some advantages to it, it has advantages of scale, it has serious disadvantages to it when we start talking about the need to innovate and the need to, to perhaps 
lean on some future third parties in order to bring us the functionality that will keep community banks competitive with fintech and other new providers. So it's it's they're they're surprised at how accurate the data is, but they're also surprised I think about what it demonstrates what the 30,000 foot view of the industry and its integrations really look like. So with those integrations is is there an education component around this because uh, a lot of this gets back to partnering with other companies or fintechs as providing another source of income for that community bank. That's a lot of information to digest all at once for a banker who's day in and day out trying to figure out what they're doing. So how does that work within the within the group? It is. Yeah, and I think education is probably the thing that I harp on the most when we're talking about either bankers helping bankers or any of the assumptions or sets of understanding that we want a banker to come to after they've engaged with this data a bit. What we're really talking about is is what the future looks like for community banking and how we are best going to be able to navigate the implementation of new technology solutions to keep pace with fintech, but also how we're going to be able to best position community banks to take advantages of some of the opportunities that exist in the marketplace. So how can they look at spinning up an entirely new digital second brand, essentially launching another bank without launching another charter. How can they take advantage of banking as a service to partner with fintechs and maybe diversify their income streams by reaching customers that they themselves as an institution would never have access to? I mean, you're you're taking a, a huge jump from the banker and how they understand technology within their institution to how they could go and, and capitalize on some of the promises of technology and opportunities inherent then therein. So I think we've got a, a massive undertaking to educate bankers. There's also a lot of folks that just where they are in their career, they kind of go, well, you know, I like things. I like things the way they are. And I don't want to have to learn all that new stuff. And that in and of itself is a challenge. The encouraging thing to me is that there's enough community bankers that have really stepped up and embraced this, even if it's, you know, one or two at a time and said, we want to learn, we want to navigate this. And we are committed to making sure that there's a path forward for our institution. We want to look at every single opportunity that's available to us to make the most of that. It's incredibly important that community banks just look at these possibilities. What the things I'm talking about aren't for everyone, but I think at the very least, we owe it to ourselves, to our communities, to our customers, to our employees, to at least consider each of these realities and, and, and try to figure out what the best path forward is for our institutions so we can make sure that we're around for the next hundred years or so. No, I think, again, most of the bankers that I know, they're looking for what does tomorrow look like? And the way I've really thought about it existentially and philosophically is they're hanging on for another day, looking for relevance, but they've got so much that they're dealing with, so much on their plate. It's like, I need somebody to help. Yes. And that's where I and I really applaud you on what you've done to kind of pull this together to provide that help and assistance where they can help each other. Well, thank you. And and I, I know that they also lean on people like you, Ralph, that, that are trusted and that have been somebody that they know gets it and, and that they can talk to about their challenges. So it's, uh, it's not just us who are developing platforms for this. It's those folks like yourself who bankers know that they can talk to because you know and, and talk to enough bankers that you see this landscape better than they're able to 
with all the busyness and things that they have in their own institution. So that goes both ways. No, thank you. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Looking ahead, when my concern, I think, again, the regulators talk about the regulatory perimeter that's around community banks and who they're dealing with. My concern gets down to there may be bankers out there that see the potential, see dollar sign potentials. Oh, this bank down there, you know, partnered with this fintech. They they did this. And they're jumping into the deep end of the pool without really even knowing how to swim in this pool. So how do you address those challenges? Yeah. And, and I think the good the good thing is that the industry is actually taking steps to make sure that we get ahead of those challenges. I think the worst case outcome for anybody in this situation is that somebody jumps into the deep end, melts down a bank, and that either regulators or lawmakers come down and say, nobody can engage in, in these types of, of third-party relationships with fintechs and sponsor them. Uh, that's a terrible outcome. So, you know, we've already seen an extension born out of bankers helping bankers with the, the launch of the Banking as a Service Association. And uh, this isn't an IBAT initiative. This isn't a, you know, something that, that we dreamed up. This is something that the bankers that were already engaging in the community said, we need this for ourselves. And so what they're doing is they're promulgating definitions. They're promulgating best practices for themselves because I think it's important that, that when or if that happens, that we're able to communicate to the regulators and others that here are things that we've done as an industry to try to self-police, to try to put guardrails in place, to ensure that appropriate following of regulations uh, was taking place, that we were accounting for and, and trying to address for fraud and, and other types of behaviors that you that you naturally see find its way into the more technology-based landscape. The promise in this is not just setting up those guardrails for those who are already engaged in those types of partnerships. I think once you establish those best practices and those guardrails, you also create a, a pretty, I'm not going to say easy path, but a much easier path for a, for a bank to come in and start to fully understand and evaluate the risks on the front end rather than coming at it and just like blindly figuring out things on their own. So this really serves not just those that are in it today, but the, those that will be in it in the future for the safety and soundness of, of the entire banking system. My experience was very much that same. Well, I, I worked as a regulator that uh, banks would come and talk to me as they were implementing corrective action or things that we talked about. So we could have that dialogue and really build it together. Whereas again, in the time that my father was a banker, he was like, you know, we were just taught to answer your questions, yes or no. We didn't call on you. We didn't ask anymore. We didn't give you anymore. But it's that collaborative effort that has to happen, that people are talking to each other so you don't end up building something incorrectly and like, okay, here's what I built. Well, mm, that's not what we were asking for. Well, and, and we've got to have, we need regulators to also have a little patience to let these things take shape, take shape, shape as well. I really worry about terms like rent a charter. And, right. and I understand exactly what Acting Comptroller Sue means when he says that, right? The fintechs that have tried to find a bank in the state where they can charge the highest percentage APR and uh, and have done that, used that loophole in the system in order to, to engage in some unsavory practices, let's just say. I think there's a really big difference in what we're talking about in terms of fintech partnership that are truly collaborative partnerships and partnerships of opportunity as well, that we don't want to paint all of this with an overly broad brush. I think there's also an angle here of financial inclusion, that there's an access point in fintech that for one reason or another that banks have not been able to crack. There's always been you know, a, a decent percentage of unbanked or underbanked individuals in this country that for whatever reason seem more inclined to do business with 
a fintech or, or one of these more up and coming technology companies than they are a traditional bank. To ensure that those folks do find their way into a safe and sound system, we need a system that balances that technology forward with that, the safety and soundness of the traditional banking system. So I think marrying those two together in partnership provides the best outcome for financial inclusion initiatives as well. So uh, I thank you for bringing up that term rent a charter. I think it is an overly broad brush and the more people use it as the more people start seeing that negatively versus there are positive aspects to it, but it has to be collaborative that bankers understand what they're getting into. It's the basic kind of premise. Before you get into it, you need to understand what you're doing. So um, this past year, I was happy to see that, you know, attending both the ICBA convention and the ABA convention, there was such a focus around partnerships, fintechs, and what banks are doing, uh, banking as a service, that it was a theme through both. And, And again, it speaks to where community banking is, what people are looking for, what they're hungry and what they're wanting to learn from. So Bankers Helping bank, Bankers started with you guys. You you know really helped to lift that off the ground with IBAT. How has that become larger than IBAT and, and where do you see this going and, and where is it now? Well, thanks. We, we've got 20, oh gosh, I've lost count, almost 30 state associations around the country, I think, that, that are engaged and, and have actively put members into bankers helping bankers. These are their members. This is important to us. Right now we reach over 72% of the charters in the country through bankers helping bankers and their affiliated state associations. This was always important to us uh, because we know that no matter where bankers are, they they often think of themselves as a Texas banker first, right? Or a Oklahoma banker first, right? They may be an ICBA or an ABA participant, but they they just naturally identify it's that state pride. You just, you know, you can't beat it out of us. And so they they naturally affiliate with those state associations. They look to their state associations often first. And to be honest, those state associations are looking for for new sources of value to deliver to their their institutions as well. We all do lobbying, we all do these things, but certainly we rely on our national counterparts where that's been their core constituency is that lobbying and advocacy efforts. So those sources of value are so important. Trying to to expand those sources of value and, and making bankers, helping bankers totally free for the bankers, but delivered to those bankers through their membership and their state community banking association was always a part of the vision for us and really, really important overall so that we do have that connection back to that organization and that source of value that we're building out. So you've been traveling around recently that you do that regularly as a part of your job, but I know while we were connecting, you've been traveling. And as you talk to the bankers and you talk to the association meetings, what do you kind of pull together as what does the future look like for community banks? You know, I think it, it, I hope it looks very, very similar in a lot of ways. But I think what we have to ask is what's going to facilitate us to operate in the next hundred years the way we've we've operated in the last hundred years. So let's just assume for a minute that our most recent sources of of income, like net interest margin or fee income, right, that both are are challenged and perhaps could be challenged further in the future. You can read all kinds of things into that about the regulatory environment or just about monetary policy, right? There's there's lots of ways we could go with that that we won't. But let's just say those might be challenged in the future. We have to find a way, right? We have to find a way for these banks to remain viable. We have to go back to that that first thing that we identified at the top of the, the conversation uh, of making sure that the people that have invested money in financial institutions get a rate of return on that that is compelling to them in order to conti- either continue investing or maintain their investment in that financial institution. So I always come back to, Perhaps we're at a moment where it's survival by any means necessary, 
and of course I mean safe and sound and, and, and regulatory compliant means. I'm not looking for anybody to go rogue here, but we may have to do things that are very, very different than we've done them in the past. We may have to diversify our income streams because to me, it's all about making sure that that community financial institution exists for the next hundred years to meet the needs of that community. Right now, especially as we see somewhat of a renaissance, people turning back to more rural parts of America because they can work from anywhere. I think there's going to be more and more opportunity, but also more pressure for local-based lending and, and, and opportunities to exist in more rural parts of America. Those, those banks that have disappeared since 1989, you know, have largely come from those more rural parts of this country. And so making sure we don't continue to lose those banks, making sure that, that there's opportunity for new charter creation to perhaps serve some of those areas, which banking has been vacated, but having every tool in our arsenal to make sure that those banks are, are profitable and doing well so that they can reward their shareholders for taking the necessary risk to start those institutions. That's exactly what we need to keep in mind as we keep looking forward to the future of the industry. Right. Chris, any last words you have? Oh, I, I have so many words, Ralph, <laughs> as you can tell. Uh, so many, no, you know, I, I, what I, I love, gosh, I won't get this right. But my, my, my friend, Mike Fernandez out in uh, uh, Sweetwater, Texas, you know, just started an all digital bank. And, and he had this post the other day that just said to my fellow community bankers out there, don't give up, right? There's a path forward. Your community needs you. And, and I think Mike's final words in that regard are probably as good as any I could come up with. So for those of you out there, don't give up. Your communities need you. Well, Chris, I would like to have more conversations with you around this issue, but I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. You and me both. Thank you, Ralph, so much. That wraps up another episode of The Endcast, talking with thought leaders about key issues in the financial industry. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. If you've not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.